Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the Greenwood and Milner Show in 2021. Woo! I know you would have probably been out to the very early hours drinking with your friends. Sorry, that's next year's intro that we're going to be doing for the Greenwood and Milner Show. Um, unfortunately, with everything that's going on, we can only wish everybody, um, obviously, this, the safest of lockdowns. Again, we are on lockdown three, as Sam likes to call it. Um, lockdown with a vengeance. Yeah, and it is some sort of vengeance. So we do want to wish all our subscribers, followers, people that listen to this show, all the very best, and hopefully all your families are doing well. It's very, very difficult time. But the Green and Milner show returns, and the first episode of the Green and Milner show was a darts player, and we've continued the theme in 2021, Sam, with the asset, Paul Nicholson. What an hour of conversation we've just had. Yeah, I just realised that. I forgot we opened the first series with a darts player as well, with Callum. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved that hour with um, Paul Nicholson. Uh, I, I didn't know just how big a Newcastle fan he was, and you will come to hear, oh, wow, <laughs> the passion he has for the club and, and how far his relationship goes back with the club. Yeah, it, it it really shocked me. It's um really interesting, really intriguing hour we've just had with him. Really, really enjoyable. Yeah, the Geordie Aussie, as the late Sid Waddell used to call him in the PDC. He is a player now commentator, um, who does a lot of work in particular with the PDC and with Talk Sports. But you know, he's not ruling out Q School next year. Just he's got a few shoulder injuries this week, which he's had for a few years. But on his day, Sam, the 2010 Players' Champion, it was in fine form tonight. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's crazy to think it was like, well, more than 10 years ago now when he won the Players, which is a which is a major, PDC TV major tournament. So <clears throat> he's beaten everyone there is to beat, really, um, even when they're at the peak. Phil Taylor, Adrian Lewis, when they were both at the peak of their powers, Paul Nicholson beat them on, te- on, on telly on a regular basis. Um, it is a shame how it ended up a bit with niggling injuries and this, that and the other but yeah um, he's one of the best pundits out there for me uh, on the dark circuit now on as you say TalkSport and when the BBC had the Champions League of Darts and does the PDC Eurotours as well for the subscription based model they have there he's, he's, he is him and I say in the show him and Mark Webster for me uh, uh, my two favourites yeah, and they get on very, very well, actually, Paul Nicholson and Mark Webster. But we talk all things to talk about that tournament that Sam mentions, the 2010 Players' Championship Finals, which he beats Mervyn King in the final in the early hours, if you remember rightly, Sam, after a thriller against Phil Taylor, who was the world champion. He'd just beaten Simon Whitlock, I believe, in that yep. final. Um, I think it was his 15th world title at that point. And then the World Cup was obviously mentioned, um, which still he, he thinks about to this day, where him and Simon Whitlock were narrowly missed out on the World Cup to Phil Taylor and Adrian Lewis. So it's well worth a listen. Um, he does talk about Newcastle as well at the very end, so it's something that you oh, you have to watch. You have to watch. All I want to say is just make sure you watch when he talk, talks about Newcastle because it is really, really good. Or listen, you know. I mean, you're listening to the podcast, so you may as well listen to it. You don't, if you want to watch it, fine. Wait till you get home, but you can listen to it as well. I mean, keep you know, just keep it on. <laughs> listen to it, watch it. I keep on saying it when we do the podcast intro, but you know, listen to it on on uh, Podomatic, Spotify, 
uh, iTunes. And if you can give us a, a five star rating, that will certainly brighten up 2021 for us. And again, yeah. a big thank you to our sponsors, BF52. It might be 2021, but some fantastic offers are still in place at bf52.com forward slash NFTV. You can get five. Six. I was going to say for, for five ninety five. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'll shut up. Back in my cage. Sorry. Continue. We'll start again. It's not even six anyway. It's eight. <laughs> exactly. I don't know why you're saying six. Oh, but you don't let me finish, do you? So. Sorry, I'll, I'll be quiet. Continue. <laughs> for five ninety five, you can get eight cans of any lager IPA, uh, beer, whatever you fancy from Beer Fifty Two. Some fantastic offers. Go and have a look on beer52.com forward slash NFTV. And to start 2021, it is Paul, the asset, Nicholson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Greenman and Mullen show. 2021 has come. And who thought it was going to get better after 2020? Well, we've got a fantastic guest to start things off. We have the 2010 Players mm-hmm. Championship winner in the PDC, well, which is famous for darts. We have, of course, of course Paul the asset Nicholson Paul, welcome to the Greenman and Mullen show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Thank you very much for having me. It's a it's an unexpected surprise to start 2021 with you guys. So thank you very much for having me on. Not a problem, Sam. Dart is a big passion between myself and, and you. Of one thing we've got in common with Newcastle United as well, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, Paul's always been someone that we've always kept a little eye on because I know we thought it might be quite difficult to get Paul on, but um, obviously with this, the restrictions, the world's in. It's been a relatively easy appointment to make, if you want to call it an appointment, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, lockdown three, lockdown with a vengeance. Who would have thought that would have come in handy? But yeah, no, Paul, Paul's done Ali Pally now for, for TalkSport, and now now he's here for the main event, so it's all good. It should be a good uh, good hour or so. Exactly. Uh, Paul, where did the passion for darts come from? Because we are just talking about the Queens and Guy post before we came on, and uh, you said you, you could not... Forget about the Queens and Guy Post. If you can tell us a little bit about that story, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, well, I was approached by um, a couple of lads who play for uh, the Queens and Guy Post uh, around 2004, I think it was, early part of that year. Around then, I was I was playing darts for Northumberland with a guy called Ronnie Dawson. And Ronnie was sneaky good, you know. And uh, I think he, he, he quite rated himself, and but didn't realise just how good he was. Whether he was going to take that next step or not, nobody really knew. But I think he was quite comfortable playing locally, but he, he really did love playing locally with some of the people that he really liked to hang out with. And I became really good friends with Ronnie. And he said, why don't you come play for the Queens on a Friday night? And this was at a time where I was playing county with Ronnie for Northumberland. And I wasn't really enjoying playing darts anymore. There was a lot of politics in the game. There was a lot of conflict between PDC players, BDO players, all sorts of things going on. And I thought, I just... I can't be bothered with this. I just want to play and enjoy it. So Ronnie said, why don't you come to Guy Post, play for the Queens, and it'll be a great laugh. He was exactly right. I started enjoying it again. I was playing against people that I knew. As really, I, th- I probably enjoyed playing at the Queens more than more than most places. And it was just a shame that I had to win because at the time I left, it was when I went to Australia. Yeah, I was, we're just going to say there's just a message from Andrew saying good evening to the Geordie Aussie, a nickname that you got from the, the late Sid Waddell. Um, yeah. Why Australia? Uh, because of my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Yes. <laughs> when, when, it, when it came to uh, when I came to Australia, my, my plan wasn't actually to move to Australia. At the time, I was working for NatWest Bank in Blythe, 
and I, I loved working at that branch with with great colleagues you know real local legends when you walk into that bank everybody's on a first name basis it's what you expect from a small bank and i was part of that but my life at the time was was in a state of um flux really i didn't really know what i was doing myself the only thing i really knew was that i, I wanted to play darts and i wanted to see my friends you know i was 23 24 years of age and my life wasn't great and i wanted to make it better and I was going to move to Pittsburgh in the States because I recognized that within the Royal Bank of Scotland, they had projects in the East Coast of America. And I thought I'm at the right age to try and improve myself in some way. So I started doing these uh, qualifications within the bank system to try and be transferred to the East Coast of the States. And when I was going through these qualifications, I met uh, my ex-wife, who was from Australia. She was on a year out in England. And she came into the bank one day and we... We hit it off, and uh, I didn't see her for about another six weeks, but I saw her in a night out in Whitley Bay. Oh, legendary. <laughs> <laughs> Where in Whitley Bay, Paul? I've got, I've got to know which night it was. Oh, do you know what? I, I cast my mind back, I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> but if you, if you said it out loud, I'd probably recognise its name. Right, I've got, we've got Havana, we've got 42nd Street, and we've got Deep. They're probably the only three that we've got left that, that are still probably there or thereabouts. I think Deep's even shut down. Probably only three. the corner from the main strip on the yeah. on the coast. I, I, I forget what the name was. <laughs> the funny thing was, I wasn't even supposed to be out that night. And wow. I met her, and we re- sort of remembered each other from the bank branch. And it's a whirlwind romance, really. Six months of you know of being with her, and then we had to make the decision whether we were staying together or whether we were going to break up. And because I was already thinking about moving, she said, "Well, why don't you move to Australia for a year?" And it turned into a uh, a whirlwind marriage uh, from a, uh, from that. I, I moved over there, would have been about two or three months later. And then I was in Australia for years after that. So how does the dart scene compare in Australia to to the northeast? What's, um, do you get that kind of same similar local league, county kind of vibe, or is it completely different? It's a very good question. From a local perspective in Australia, things are a little bit more spread out because it's such a big country. Yeah. I mean, even living in Melbourne, where the city's quite condensed and you've got definitive suburbs, uh, there were pretty much only four or five dark clubs that throughout the entire city. It's a very big city. So, yeah, local stuff. And if you want to play competitions, you can play competitions very similar to the UK. And then instead of playing county, they've got state darts. If, you, uh, if you're good enough, you have to go through trials for that. I never went down that route because I always wanted to keep it fun. From a local perspective, it was slightly different. I always felt that there was a lot of pressure playing locally in the Northeast because of the talent pool that there was. I mean, you were playing against really good players like Davey Richardson from Gatehead and Gary Robson from Seg Hill, who obviously played at Lakeside many times. Mm-hmm. And you always think, you know, you've got to play against these great players. And I thought, going to Australia and going just to a local league for the first time, I would be up against some people who just wanted to play for fun. The first night I went, I realised that I was going to be uh, in for something quite similar to what I had in the Northeast because the first, one of the first people I saw at the bar on my first night there was Steve Duke Sr. and he played at Lakeside three times. And I thought, no matter where I go, I'm destined to come up against these great players. <laughs> and from, a, from an enjoyment perspective, I, I, I sort of rekindled my love for the game a bit because it was different. 
there was a there was a mentality in the northeast of when you get good at something you are constantly judged constantly judged about you know every single performance there was pressure on you and i always felt that but when i went to australia it was really they encouraged me a lot and it was about incremental improvement and yeah you can do this you can do this and it just reinvigorated what i wanted to do which was to play darts at a decent level but the 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 baby steps of getting towards the big time over there are very similar to what they are like over here fantastic it is quite fascinating that it doesn't matter where you go there's going to be excellent dart players that you're going to be up against paul and it, it's yeah. no different now you could go into whitley bay as you mentioned go to australia the standard is just so high particularly mm. in the pvc obviously the bdo it's, it's no longer the bdo obviously we've got the, the wdf but um the standard dart is just absolutely insane at the minute and who knows where it could go in the next five ten years yeah i i love where it's going at the moment I, I like the fact that we're making changes as well it's there's still got we've still got this thing with with modern amateur darts for example where we want to go from pub to pro and we want to instill to the people who want to come through the system that you know what eric bristol once said about the fact that dart players will always come from the pub i think there's an element of truth to that but we're going to get dart players not just from the pub now, we're going to get them from different avenues. We're going to get them from academies. We're going to get them from the development tour now. And we're going to have a whole different scheme of player, I think, you know, going 10 years forward. We've just had in Gerwin Price the first Q school graduate to win a world title. And that took 10 years to find. So let's face it, in 10 years' time, what are we going to find? Are we going to have our first world champion from a youth system? within the PDC? I think we probably are. We could have a Dimitri Vandenberg or a, a Luke Humphreys come through and be that first person. So I think the changes that the PDC have made are changing the future incrementally. But the standard, wherever you go, is huge, whether it's Australia, whether it's uh, Japan, especially Japan. And if you go all over Europe, countries are starting to unearth the talents that we want to see. Poland, Czech, Czech Republic, absolutely fascinating right now with talent germany and there are talents all over italy that we haven't found yet just just waiting for them to, to come through i think as well it filters all the way down doesn't it because I, I i still play local league and that's about my level but you see these kids come in the pub nowadays no fear they don't need a shandy or anything and they're just flying you think they're and then you've got the old boys in the corner who have to have about eight points before they even have a game of best of three. It's It just shows how the game the game is evolving. And uh, Andrew's in the comments who's got a question for you, Paul. Do you think the new organisation, Mad Darts, will be a help for the amateur scene? I think it will be. What we're doing with modern amateur darts at the moment, and Steve Brown has to be commended for all of the work that he's done, getting everything off the ground. We're only seeing the, the first steps of what we're going to do with MAD. But... What we want to do is take the existing infrastructure with what we have with local leagues all around the country. And this is the, the misconception with, with it right now. People think that we're going to come in and storm and, and change everything. No, that's not what it's about. It's about giving people a structure or something to aim for, whether you want to be a regional champion, whether you want to be um, a super regional champion, whether you want to be a national champion, a world champion, which Wayne Warren is, of course. It's about giving people something to aim for now that some of the infrastructure from previous organizations is no longer there. And the working relationship between MAD and the WDF, I think it's going to be very important in the next few years. The last thing darts needs is another conflict. We need everybody to be on the same page and have the same goal. 
And is it sad that the BDO has gone? Of course it is. You know, we're sitting here right now. We should be watching something from Lakeside. And yeah. I'd be, I was there for the last Lakeside. And it was, you know, I didn't realise it was the last one at the time, but I just had a feeling that something was ending. It's quite sad. You know, it's quite an iconic place. Not not quite an iconic place, incredibly iconic place. So MAD wants to give people something to shoot for, but what we need to do is give them something motivational, uh, something to keep going forward with. And it needs to be different. You can't continue to do the same thing and expect the different results. That's the definition of insanity. So <laughs> what we need to do is give them something a bit fresh and exciting. That's what the PDC did back in 1994. They didn't get everything right. They put horses in the circus tavern. They you know, had uh, all sorts of things going on in the early stages, trial and error stuff. Will MAD get it right from the very off? Probably not. But I'll tell you what, you learn more from mistakes than you do from getting things right. So I think, again, if we judge it in five years' time, we'll understand why this is being done. I hope so. I hope so. Let's take it back to you, Paul. Uh, 2009 World Championship in particular as when probably more people knew about you. Obviously, you played a few events that were screened on ITV, um, but obviously Sky Sports, Yali Pali, and there's a, actually a comment from Jonathan Young. He says, I followed Paul since 2008. Beat, there was 4-3, I think, with the 1-2-1 one, two, one, two, one finish on the Bulls. I actually remember watching that. I was a, I'm not going to lie, I was a big agent. It was fun. I still am, to be honest with you. And I was I'm thinking, how's he done that? How's he beat them with that? Honestly, from that moment on, I always had to keep an eye on you because I think he's got he's got some talent. And did you feel that was a breakthrough to because you beat such a big name? Or did you think, actually, no, I, I feel comfortable against these big boys now. It doesn't matter which tournament it is. It's it's amazing that you say that because when I look back at the end of 2008, I, I look first and foremost at Las Vegas of that year where I walk into this big grand hall at the Mandalay Bay and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I don't belong in this room. And I've been flogging everybody in Australia and consequently in New Zealand for the first six months of 2008, gaining confidence that I'd never had before and... Every time I stepped on a dartboard, I expected to win every match, and I was winning the majority of them. I was winning titles left, right, and center. But when you walk into that room in Vegas after winning your PDC membership at an event in Christchurch in New Zealand, you think, this is pretty daunting. And I was severely tested that month. When I left Vegas, I didn't think I belonged, so I went back to Australia, went back to some of the tournaments there, and for some reason I got better. And I realized I'm just getting better incrementally, gaining experience. And by the time the Australian Open Festival came along in August of 2008, where some of the big boys came over to Australia to try and take our Australian Open title, which was a ranking event back then for the PDC, I thought, this is the proper test now. This is where I can get to the World Championship. I can get to the Grand Slam. If I can do that and live with the boys while they're over here, this is the acid test. And Robert Thornton came over. Ronnie Baxter came over, Dennis Ovens came over, Gary Mawson. Um, Pat O'Reill was was a big-time player in, in uh, our darts and DPA back then. And that festival changed my life. When I established confidence by making the final of the Australian Open and getting my place at the World and the Grand Slam, that was where my confidence really started to soar. Now, when I went to play at the Grand Slam and when I played in the first and second round of the Worlds, I didn't feel particularly 
overawed by the situation. I was a little bit nervous on my debut against Gary Anderson. That's why I practiced for eight hours before that game. <laughs> yeah, I'm not over, overselling that either. I was there at two in the afternoon and I wasn't playing until 9.30 that night. Uh, I just wanted to stay on the board. <laughs> when, I go in, when I went to the World Championships after the Grand Slam experience, I felt so at ease and I felt so confident because of all of the work I'd done before that event. And I had no doubt in my mind that Adrian Gray was going to get, get beaten by me. I had no yeah. doubt. When I went into the game with Adrian Lewis, I thought, this is the biggest game of your life. But I felt so good about my game and so confident. I thought, all the pressure's on him. Now I just need to go and prove what I've been doing all year. And the high finishes, you know, that I don't know exactly how many I hit in that match. There's a lot of them. But boy, I was not surprised by it. I was just flying with confidence at the time. And it was it was one of the best battles I've ever had. Aren't you unbeaten against Adrian Lewis on TV? Yes. <laughs> not a bad record. I mean, me and Adrian have got a really good relationship. I absolutely love the guy to bits. He's, it's impossible not to like him. But for some reason, when we put on the opposing World Cup shirts, he turned into a bit of a monster. Yeah. And we all seem to do that. But, yeah, my record against him was was excellent. A uh, couple of World Cup victories, beat him in the Players' Championship Finals, of course, at the quarterfinal stage, beat him in the World Championships. And, yeah, he beat me a few times on the floor, but I'm, I'm quite proud of that record. And it, you know, I, I almost hope that I don't play him again on TV because that's a <laughs> over him. Yeah, I think it's obviously something you've got to look back and go, well, that is a moment. Like I think it was in an afternoon session that Lewis game, wasn't it? I think it was the last the last game in the afternoon. I yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I remember that being. I think it was second game of the afternoon session, and I was there at eight thirty in the morning, just wow. getting ready because I, I was there with the cleaners at Ali Pali. Remember there was no hoop in the carpet, and put on a portable heater for me because it was so cold in the morning. I just wanted to be there and ready, and. I was. I always felt confident going into that game, but most of all, I think I felt all right with the challenge at that time. I felt ready for it. And I was. I was never ready for a world championship more than the first one, and that's why I had my best one there. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, moving into the next year or so in twenty ten is probably, as I say, probably one of the best years of your life in terms of darts. Mm. The players' championship final, which you mentioned, you beat Adrian Lewis on TV in the quarterfinals. It, when you look at the, the three players you beat just in on that Sunday, obviously Adrian Lewis, Phil Taylor, who had just been the world, I think he just won the world in that year. Yeah. And then you had Mervyn King, who we all know, BDO and PVC, has been fantastic, a great advocate for darts. And obviously you can see a picture there of a young <laughs> Paul Nicholson winning that fantastic tournament. Um, what are your memories of that whole day, the whole tournament? And you were deserving winner on the day. Yeah, I, I believe I was. I, th I think that was just my day. I, I remember being the first person in the building uh, from a playing perspective and official and management perspective. I got there at 9.30 in the morning. I didn't leave that building again until after half past 12 the next day. It was one of the longest days of my career. And again, I just wanted to be there to be to show everybody that I was ready. You know, I, I was taught at a very, very early point sitting with Mervyn King, that you want to be there early. And he was right. And just so happened that we were the people that were there the longest. It was <laughs> quite a nice moment. But, uh, there were some things that happened in that day, which I'll, I'll save for me book, which can't be said on a PG production. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a few great stories from that day. But 
ultimately the way I prepared for that first game against Adrian, I felt I felt terrific. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to massage the memories of you know when I played him at the World Championships. I don't think I played as well in that quarterfinal as I did against Adrian in round two of the Worlds. I felt more nervous during that game than I did with the, the previous match. And because of uh, the big gap between the two games, I remember finishing up with Adrian and going to do my press and thinking I'm in the semi-final of a major. And the one thing that was going through my mind more than anything else was one more game and you're in the Grand Slam. I wasn't thinking about the title. I was thinking about I wanted to be in the Grand Slam again because I loved that experience so much. Now, if you look at the win against Taylor, and you see my words when I go towards the board. There's a camera above it. You'll see. I'm saying I'm in the Grand Slam. Wow! Isn't that amazing? I'm in a major yeah. final, and I'm thinking I'm in the Grand Slam. That's how I was thinking at the time. I wasn't thinking about the title. I was thinking about something else that I wanted. It's almost <laughs> a really strong mental state. It's, you know, do you want to score goals? Yes, of course you do. But I'm too busy thinking about getting the ball down the wing. Um. That, that was my mindset at the time. It was almost displaced. But what a lot of people don't know about that time as well as I was going through some personal turmoil, I was not in not in a great space. I was living in North Shields uh, with my flatmate and I didn't really know what I was doing. The uh, only thing I was doing was practicing brilliantly. I was on that board all the time and just hitting everything. And I went to a tournament in Birmingham the week before it and I won that, and I beat Colin Osborne in the final. It was just a local event, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Jamie Caven said, come down to Derby, I'll take you to this, this warm-up event, we'll both do well. And it turns out I win it, and Colin Osborne makes the semi, uh, the final. He ended up making the semi-finals the following week, and I ended up winning it, uh, which I think is quite apt. But these things just have a way of working out sometimes, and that, that victory basically solidified me staying in the UK um, after moving back from Australia. Who would have thought, never mind the winning the title, you just wanted to spend a week in Wolverhampton. Especially <laughs> uh, at the end of that year in, in 2010, I mean, do you feel slightly aggrieved that you weren't uh, you weren't in the Premier League the following year? No, not at all. Uh, I've never, never felt aggrieved with that. I actually feel quite proud of the fact, still, to this day, I am the only current major champion who was not selected for the next Premier League. The only one. And the longer I cold onto that title, the better. Because it makes me a point of answer, right? But I don't feel aggrieved about that. And then the next window I had for the Premier League was a couple of years later, when I had a, a tremendous run in 2011 of you know title wins on the floor and had some good TV runs as well. That year, I had a genuine shot at it. Then was when I felt ready. But unfortunately for me, I didn't give myself a big enough shot window when Kevin Painter won the players. And when Andy Hamilton made the world final, I just fell short. But knowing what I know now, I'm pretty sure that the Premier League would have ruined me. I don't think I would have coped with it very well. I think I may have been some sort of record holder for darts regulation authority fines, if that had been the case. <laughs> because the way that I played the game was was on a knife edge. And I think those arenas might have seen the end of me. That's interesting you say that about the Premier League, Paul, because there's obviously players that have had like one-hit wonders in terms of the Premier League. Obviously, a, a colleague of yours, when you're commentating or have been with the BBC with the Champions League of Darts, but Mark Webster, he's mm. one that struggled in the year. Uh, and he was, I think he was either, obviously a couple of years beforehand, he was BDO World Champion and he, I think he beat Taylor in the Worlds, I think in the mm. quarters, got the semis. 
So it just shows that maybe you you were right in hindsight, but the talent was definitely there. And you talk about 2011 being one of your strongest years, beating Phil Taylor again. Mm-hmm. It, and you kind of sent out a message to him where, you know, I, I want to take you on. I want yeah. to take you on. And to be honest with you, Paul, you're one of the first to really say that. And everyone was kind of shocked. But I think a few people were like, oh, go on then, Paul. Someone mm-hmm. needs to do it because Taylor was winning everything left, right and centre. Yeah, I mean... Going into 2011, he was as strong as he'd ever been. He was dominant. And I had gotten to know Phil a little bit. And, you know, he's not someone who would be on my Christmas card list, but I, I had no respect for him. Yeah. I thought he was an amazing dark player. Now, the one thing that I liked with Phil Taylor is I loved to play his pace. I was really, really happy playing the pace of game that he brought. Now, I may not to this day have the best record against Phil, but at a time, I'd won two games out of two on TV. And the reason for that is that I could take my time and I wasn't being rushed by a very fast player. I was in a really good space and I always had enough time to think before every throw. The message I was sending after that 2011 UK Open was to everyone to say, he can be beaten. He can be ruffled. You can beat this guy. Let's all try and do this because he's... The best player in the world by an absolute stretch, but he's not bulletproof. You can get to him. And I could have beaten him again about two, I think it was six to seven weeks later at the European Championship. And we he, he pulled out two absolutely unbelievable finishes at the end. I think he took 129 and a 138, uh, two of the last three legs when it was seven all. And if he doesn't hit that 129, I beat him because I'll be eight, seven up and then I'll be three. I had him. Right where I wanted them, but the class of that shot, I'll never forget that. But I like to think that that performance against Phil that Saturday night just showed everybody that it was possible. 100%. 100%. And it was actually, really, like I say, refreshing to see because even the players that right at the very, very top, you had your Barneys, you had your Lewises, etc. They weren't saying that. They were just they respecting them too much and it was good to see someone take them on. But um, obviously... The World Cup, it must get mentioned so many times. And the fact that you've played numerous World Cups is just a credit to yourself, Paul. And Sam, the one World Cup that gets mentioned more than most is probably the most memorable World Cup of them all in 2012. And before we get Paul to talk about his experience from a fan's point of view, um, Sam, what can you remember from it? Oh, tension, angst, needle. It had everything, didn't it? It had absolutely everything. Um. You should have won it, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> you should have won. Does that still kind of irritate you a bit that it was there for the taking? Or Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can honestly say that after that match, uh, I probably wasn't right in a darts perspective for a good four months. Really? It was a long time. I remember definitively getting getting home on the plane and ringing my girlfriend from the from the plane when I landed saying, can you come and get me? Because I, I, I can't drive. I, I was in that much of a state. I still had tears going down my eyes when I was coming down the runway. It was awful. It was a horrible experience. I, I felt like I'd lo- let a lot of people down. you know. And I hear a lot of dark players and sports people these days saying, sorry for that performance. And I hate it when they do that. But when it's World Cup, it's different because... I felt like I, I had a debt to the uh, Dark Players Australia and I wanted to repay that debt by giving them a World Cup. And I remember saying to Simon Whitlock after that final, um, 
when I was punching the stage. <laughs> uh, I wanted to win that for you. I, I wanted to win it for Simon because he'd, he'd given me the opportunity. What a pairs player. Oh my, I can't, can't even measure how good he is at pairs. It's unbelievable. Think about some of the players he's played with over in Australia. He's won with everyone. It's because of him. And I wanted to him, him to have that World Cup so badly. And if you think about 2012, I was broken for months. He went on to win the European Championship. Wow. To show how strong in mind he was and how well he was playing at the time. But the final was dramatic. It was it was tough to handle because Adrian was oh, he was yeah. backstage and Phil was silent. He was like a, like a sheep in the in the meadow, just waddling around doing his thing, totally relaxed. Didn't try any needle whatsoever. But Adrian, wow, <laughs> it was awful. And consequently, for the next couple of years, it was awful as well. He was he was in my ear all all the time, but. Yeah, I mean, there was an incident at the end of the game. All my fault. Not Adrian's fault whatsoever. That's a that's a misconception. Because Adrian was in my ear about something. It was my fault. I slammed my darts on the stage in anger at losing the match. And one of them careered off the side of the stage and hit a cameraman's leg. Oh. All on me. Absolutely got punished for it by the DRA. And at the time, I was just trying to stay silent because I was really emotional. And Adrian had every right to tell me off. It's it's quite a well-known fact uh, within dart and circles, but uh, just one of those things I really regret. And I, I never actually got a chance to apologise to the cameraman because I've never come across him again. Um, I just hope he is still working in the sport because those guys do a fantastic job. But I don't think there's been a final since then uh, that has come anywhere close to that. But <laughs> some games have got really close. I know there's been some great ones with the Dutch and the Germans and some others since, but... Uh, when I think about that, I start getting start getting sweaty. <laughs> it genuinely was very, very stressful. I've never felt that nervous and that anxious in my life. I was going to say, because there's a question here, and I, I, I'd like to think it's the right answer because of how much you, you love representing Australia, and it's from Andrew. He says, what was your favourite tournament to play in? Is it the World Cup? Um, No. I'd have to say I, I felt more pressure playing World Cup than any other Uh the one that I enjoy the most is the World Grand Prix. It's oh, really? not a very popular answer, that, because everybody yeah. says World Match Play because they love the Winter Gardens. World Championship, for obvious reasons, Ali Pali is fantastic. But I come from a background of double start dots. When I played for the Blue Bell in Bedlington, when I played for <laughs> the club in Cramlington, when I played for the MSDA club in Melbourne on a Monday night, it was all double start. Double start was my game. And if I thought I was going to add to that place championship finals, the Grand Prix was going to be my boy. And 2012, when Van Gerwen won that, I had a genuine shot, I think. <clears throat> I came through Mickey Mansell. I came through Colin Osborne. I was really starting to grow in confidence. And my nemesis in the quarterfinals got me again in Wes Newton. And yeah. I'm at the bullseye for the match. If I get through that, I think I've got Michael Van Gerwen next. And I'm not saying I would have beaten Michael because Michael was playing so well at the time. And I was practicing with him and it was scary. But... I would have had a shot at it, and that was the closest I got in that one. But that tournament in Dublin, oh, so much fun to play, and that was the one I look forward to probably the most each year, aside from possibly the Grand Slam, which has you know good memories because that was my first one. Yeah, Sam, Dublin for a darts tournament just sounds mayhem anyway, but it's a great tournament, isn't it? Yeah, 
I'd love to go. I really would. It, it does. I, I love a bit of double start as well. I really do playing it as well because my scoring so appalling. Double start is a brilliant, uh, brilliant leveler. But um, yeah, Paul. This at the moment we've got a world champion that's quite a polarising figure in Gerwin Price. Mm. You yourself, when you were at the peak of your powers, were also quite uh, polarising with the way you played. Um, where did that sort of attitude come from? Where did it start? How did it evolve? I think it started when I played County for Northumberland. We we originally used to play at the Northern Club in Ashington, but we were moved to the Marlborough Club in Newcastle. And it was a, it was a, a short ceiling sort of small venue, but it had a bit, bit of something about it when you played um, a game against another county that you didn't particularly like. <laughs> and I was a big fan of the Matrix. So I grew to the character Neo very, very naturally. And I thought it would be funny just to go onto the stage to a bit of Rob Zombie music from the Matrix Reloaded movie and slip on the shades and look like Neo. And then it just stuck like that for me. That I felt like I had an identity but I didn't want to have this bad boy image at all until Sky really emphasised it at my first World Championships. And I remember having a conversation at a presentation night in Melbourne with my friend Tony Crampton. And he said, there's a real gap in the market for someone to have a, a proper image within the game. And this is before I started doing stuff within the big time. And it always stuck in my head and I thought, he's right. There is, a, there is an opportunity here for someone to have a genuinely good walk-on song, someone who has decent merchandise, and someone who has a character that you can grasp onto. Now, I, to this day, don't believe I did anything right. I didn't quite nail the walk-on music because uh, <laughs> the certain thing with the, the songs that I wanted, I wasn't allowed them because they were either too explicit or they were a bit too risky. Now, I started with Metallica, and that is the route I wanted to go down. I, I'm, I'm a big heavy metal fan. But anything that I wanted to try always seemed to have a hurdle there, whether it was, you know, because of a PG rating or whether it's, you know, it was too risky. I think I just wanted something that you just couldn't have within professional sport. I was trying to take it to the wrestling angle, you know, like what Triple H was doing, Batista and, you know, CM Punk's and that kind of thing. And I think it was almost unachievable what I was trying to do. And if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have done it. I would have tried to be a bit more under the radar. Really? So, yeah, you get a question there saying, how much of a wrestling fan are you? That CM Punk entrance. I remember the CM Punk entrance. That was just kind of towards the end of me watching wrestling. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah there's not many people doing that. And then you see like Arsenal, for example, like half time, you see they put wrestling music on for the players come back out. That's probably the closest I've ever seen for that. Yeah. It was, but it was extraordinary. The good thing about the, the, the CM Punk stuff was at the time I found what he was doing incredibly inspirational. I, I did it. did an interview with Dave Clark on stage at the World, uh, the World Hunting Civic and he was talking to me about the whole thing and I said, I found what he was doing in wrestling as very inspirational because like I said, I was trying to go and do something very akin to what the wrestlers do with their image. Um, ultimately, my thin skin wouldn't allow it because I was taking everything to heart, so... If I was losing matches, I was going off stage and bubbling my eyes out. That's just the kind of person I was and still am to this day. But everything that I was doing was just trying to carve out a little bit of extra confidence, that little extra percent I was looking at. And when I was doing the whole uh, it's um, 
I've, I've forgotten the line now. How good am I? Um, <laughs> it's clobbering time when I'm shouting it through my hands at the start of the walk on. That was a way of me just releasing all of my nervous energy before I get on stage. And it really worked because when I was doing it, I think I was playing some of the best parts of my career. When I stopped doing it, I seemed to get a bit more nervous. So I don't know why I stopped doing that. But this is retrospect talking. Yeah. If I turn back time, I would continue to do it. But we can't go back in time, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately not. Sam, Paul obviously talks about his playing side, but I think his commentating and obviously yeah. the work that he does and with the PDC on radio, talk, sport, five, live, etc. over the years, is just as good. And it gives you a real insight to what a professional's thinking. You know, we can all talk about what we think Gurren Price, Michael Van Gurren, yada, yada, yada. But Paul's been there, done it, got the T-shirt. It's, fa- it's a fantastic insight, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I think um, Paul and Mark Webster, breath of fresh air, because um, I thought the pundits were getting a bit... Not stale, but a, a bit samey. You knew what you were going to get from Sky. You knew what you were going to get from ITV. So it really was a breath of fresh air. I, I, I think Paul, I'm not just saying it because he's listening. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think um, Paul and Mark Webster are, are the best ones. Um, is it something you've always had in mind to do when you you get to a kind of, not, not a certain age, but you know a certain stage in your career that the TV angle is the one that you want to go down? Yeah, I think it probably is. There's a, there's a lot of players who see themselves sliding down the rankings and they think, well, what next? Well, luckily for me, it was all about uh, slipping into something that there was a little bit of a hole there. Um, and my break came at the Europeans in 2011 when ITV called me when I was in my hotel room and said, look, we, we don't have anybody to, to speak to the presenter for the semi-finals just for 10 minutes tonight, would you be able to go down and help for us? And I said, sure. And the guy that was presenting was called Tony Wrighton, who was someone I knew personally. Uh, and consequently, he'd become my sports psychologist two years later. Um, but he said to me after we'd done the 10 minutes, he said, you spoke really well. They're really clear and concise. And and that was a really big compliment. I thought maybe it's something I can do later in, later in my career. Little did I know that 12 months later at the very same tournament, ESPN were covering it. And the PDC said, ESPN have got a skeleton crew and they need a couple of players to step up and help with commentary duties. Now, you will not believe this. Obviously, I had a little bit of experience coming through the World Series because we did that in Australia. But one of my first games that I did was with Jim Proudfoot. Yeah. Now, Jim had never done a darts match before and I had barely done any darts. And I thought, we were two greenhorns here. And immediately, I, I just knew Jim Proudfoot was a learning machine. And as a consequence, he is without a doubt the best commentator I've ever worked with and probably ever will work with. He's just so good. But to share that experience with Jim was incredible. But moving forward, I've just grown in confidence with the whole thing. I've been incredibly lucky uh, working with the European Tour, getting all of the exposure to the form. Working with Dan Dawson is always fun. It's never, ever boring. Um, Chris Murphy, Rob Malarkey, you know, all of the guys at Talk Sport, the likes of John Rowland, who's become a personal friend now. It's it's very surreal considering some of the boxing matches that I used yeah. to go through with my brother and my dad. John Rowland was commentating on these matches, and you think, this is very weird. <laughs> very, very weird. Some of the doors that have opened for me because of some of the friendships I've made. But the job of commentating is never boring 
And little did I know until very recently when I had a conversation with my brother, he said, you probably won't remember this, but when you were a kid, you used to mimic Sid Waddell when he was on the telly as a commentator. <laughs> and I did not know this. So obviously with no social media back then or smartphones or, you know, we didn't have a camcorder because we were quite a, um, quite a poor family. But yeah, apparently I used to try and uh, mimic the commentators on the TV, like uh, Barry Davies and uh, you know, Des Lyne and Jimmy Hill, Sid Waddell, Dave Lanning, the lot. I used to used to mimic them all. So maybe it was just something that clicked and I've held on to it for the rest of my life. It's I think that's fascinating that because you're talking about John Rawl and Jim Pro for more particularly with like football with Jim and John. He was commentating on Theory Wilder not long ago. Yeah. And that, that is yeah. absolutely insane. I think he commentated on it. Um I think it was I think BT been doing boxing like indoors in their studios. Yeah. He went to do a boxing match and came back to do the players' championship finals very recently. So yeah. That tells you how good he is and how much he's well respected for. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I think John is a legend. You know, his voice is so recognisable throughout the world. And he is a, a go-to boxing guy. And not to mention athletics as well. I mean, talk about surreal. Over the last couple of years, since I've you know got a lot more friendly with John, working with him at TalkSport and uh, through some other projects as well, he arranged for us to go and have a game of golf uh, at Formby in Merseyside where he introduced me to Steve Smith, uh, the Olympic high jumper, who was a hero of mine as a kid. You know, I remember, you know, trying to do high jumping, uh, you know, when I was a kid on the couch and thinking I was Steve Smith with the, the ginger locks, you know. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm a 39-year-old kid again when I'm shaking hands with Steve Smith on the first tee and he's become a mate. Wow. And it's weird. And I went to see Steve last year and it's not a day goes by where I don't think he's just the coolest man on the planet. He's, and I'm, I'm still that kid. I still get starstruck by certain people, but have them as, as friends is uh, one of the biggest gifts that I've ever been given. Well, that's fascinating. Never meet your heroes, Sam. That's what you. That's what you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we. I mean. Johnny, we we have this every week when we do these shows, don't we? I mean, like Sky's Pete Graves ringing me whilst I'm walking around Tesco. It's just very, very surreal. And you think, well, what were well, you were on Sky Sports News a minute ago? Why are you? Why? Are you, what are you doing speaking to me? It's just it's it's bizarre, isn't it? It is, but it is it is really cool. Yeah, it is very very cool. Uh, last last question, then we'll talk about football. And mm-hmm. um, we have to talk about the recent World Championship, Paul. Gerwin Price is the 10th PDC winner of the World Championship since 1994, of course, when the split and obviously the PDC went their own ways. And he was a deserving champion. He beat Gary Anderson in the final 7-4. He had a few last leg deciders. wasn't the smoothest rise uh, to his first World Championship. But was there a better darts player that last few weeks, Paul? Because doubles-wise, he's got a hell, hell bottle. Uh, I think with Gezi, what you've got is someone who is only just starting to realise how good he is. If you look back at when Michael Van Gerwen won his first world title in 2014, when he consequently found the number one ranking as well, he he did do uh, he did make some mistakes in that final. Now the the dart that he threw before his final checkout, he threw it out of the board in a somewhat petulant manner. Now every world champion will say that the hardest dart is probably winning that first world title. I wouldn't know because I was never there. But 
Gerwin Price saying, you know, he, he couldn't believe how nervous he was when he got to that final double. There's a very apt saying by Phil Taylor, which I will never forget. And it's, you can't practice yourself. Yeah. There's a swear word in there, but it's so true. You just can't practice that. You've got to be in that position to get over the line. Just ask Mike Gregory from 1992. He didn't get it done. And Phil, who'd already got it done, got it done in one shot. So there is, there in itself is the lesson. But is he a worthy champion? Absolutely. Fantastic 2020 and obviously start to 2021. Did he play his best darts in that tournament? Absolutely not. That's the scary thing. Now, we saw glimpses of it because in that final, he was delightful. And I think it was the sixth set where he put in that 136 average in the set. If that's what he's capable of, and that's that's face facts, that's the best set ever. And now look at all of the players that we've seen in history. He's now the best set ever. Better than Anderson, better than Van Gogh, better than Taylor, better than Barneville, better than everyone. That's a scary prospect. You could ask me how many world titles I expect him to win. He might not win anymore. Doesn't matter. He's etched his name in history. Do I think he'll win another one? Yes, I do. I do. I think I think he's destined to win more because he's not the kind of person who just settles for one big check, one big win, and one etch on a trophy. I think he wants a lot more. Sam, what do you think he can do? Because like I, I've said this to other people, I've said this, this player has a lot of bottle. And that's, in my opinion, that proves you're a, if you're a top 16 player, or you're going to be at the real top if you can hit those doubles under pressure, and he can—he's yeah. got a lot of bottle. And you look at someone like Michael Smith, Dave, Dave Chisnell, excellent, exceptional darts players, but they, won, they have, but they can't get that, get over that winning line. And Gurren Price, it was a rugby player, now a darts player, he knows how to do it. He knows how to get over the line. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, I, I'm like Paul. I expect him to to win another one, another world. Um, I think he'll end up rivaling Paul's DRA finds at some point as well. <laughs> uh, I think that's almost a given. Um, the, the way he plays, but it's it's part and parcel of the sport. It's good to watch, I suppose. But yeah, he he was he was phenomenal. I have to admit, when we got down to the semi final, I was kind of secretly cheering Stephen Bunting. I love Stephen to bits, um, but. I think he was the underdog out of the out of the final four, wasn't he? But yeah, he was. I think if you take the whole year into account, I think Gerwin Price was the right champion in the end, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely right. And I think he's got this uh, mentality as well, which a lot of players are going to have to find, and that's genuine selfish nature on the stage. Because if you don't have that, it's it's not arrogance, it's not overconfidence, it's. If I don't do this, nobody else is going to do it for me. He gets up there and he gives everything every game. And you might not like him, but you don't have to. You might like Gary Anderson more, and that's incredibly fine. But you have to respect the fact that someone is going up there and he's trying to win a life-changing amount of money. He's adding to what he's already done. And he's trying to make his name in history. And nothing like that is easy. He's done it so, so well against one of the greatest players ever in Gary Anderson. I'm not over-embellishing that because genuinely he is one of the best ever. And I think they were destined to meet in a world final after what happened a couple of years ago. But you have to have that selfish nature. And if you look at the way he ran in a rugby field and the way he performs on a dart stage, very similar, very, very selfish. Tunnel vision, straight down, get out of my way. He has and he's got to the world number one. Fantastic for him. Let's talk about Newcastle. 
Steve Bruce is the manager, Paul, the 15th in the league, currently on 19 points. There's been a lot of questions about the manager and the, the style of play and, you know, whether he should be the manager of Newcastle in the future. But when you look at everything that's happened this season in particular, where do you think Newcastle are? And do you think they've over exceeded expectations? They've not done enough? Where do you, where do you sit on it? I think they're about right. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> where they deserve to be. If you look at the, the teams that are in front of them, I think you have to say that they are better than Newcastle United. I think based on the attacking prowess that we have at Newcastle, I think we are quite fortunate to be 15th. You know, if it wasn't for a couple of half-decent signings, there's no way we'd have half as many goals. But, I mean, it, I, I used to work in Newcastle United. As a lot of people don't know this. Yeah. I used to uh, serve pies and hot dogs and all that kind of stuff. Back in 1995, and I was there for all of the games in Euro 96. So that's Newcastle United Stadium, St. James's Park, was where I met my first proper girlfriend. She <laughs> <laughs> was with me on one of the days, and then we hit it off. It's That's another story. But, yeah, I was there when we had players like Shearer and Ferdinand and Ginola and Darren Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> just to scale it back a little bit, um, but I don't, I don't get that feeling of excitement. I know that Newcastle back then were, you know, a really exciting to watch, and they had a, a a really maverick manager in Kevin Keegan. But even before that, we was we would we had this style of football that was very watchable. Uh, it's very akin to what you'd find, you know, in in the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks. It's always very watchable. With Newcastle right now. I was I was watching that game between Newcastle and Brentford when I was at Ali Pali, and I'm just looking at it, thinking, "Why am I watching this? It's boring." <laughs> you know, I know the pitch wasn't great, but that never stopped the team in the '90s and, and teams since then. What I'm finding with this team and the manager is there's no genuine excitement. Even when Brucey does a an interview at the end when we've had a win, I don't see the excitement and. As someone who was from the area, who has got the managerial position, where's the excitement? Where's the passion? Where's that 10% of Keegan when he was having to go at Alex Ferguson? That's all I want to see from him. I want to see some gumption. I'm not seeing any of that. And I'm seeing a club that is coasting. And it's a very dangerous thing to do when there's a potential cliff edge there. You go off that. There's no guarantee you come back. 100%. You're seeing teams like Leeds, Portsmouth, Southampton, Sunderland. Look, look at Sunderland. Perfect example just down the road. They're yeah. stuck in the third division of all, of, of all of all divisions, to say the least. But I think Sam Paul's just spoke passionately for about 15, 20 seconds, which is more we've seen from, than Steve Bruce in a couple of months. Do you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, how many times have we done the post-match reaction videos this season and we're just saying, just let the freaking handbrake off? Yeah. Or do something, you know. Yeah. We we we're just so boring to watch, like Paul said. But we've got players like Fraser, ASM, Almiron, Wilson. And if it wasn't for Callum Wilson, we'd be in the bottom three. I think we'd all agree yeah. that yeah. there is attacking prowess there. He's just Steve Bruce just isn't letting the handbrake off, is he? Yeah. It's just all it's all too stagnant. It's all too cautious, and we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. It's so frustrating and. That Sheffield United game next week is going to be massive because that will determine the rest of our season, I think. Yeah, I, I'd like to say something at this juncture. If if it was me 
uh, going in there and trying to fire the troops up. And, it, and I think it's it's more difficult these days with more foreign players who don't seem to understand the the natural culture of a club and the natural rivalries and, and you know, that kind of thing. But the likes of DeAndre Yedlin, I think, is a very good example. He's probably got no idea what it means to pull that black and white shirt on. Every time I watch him, I just don't get it. You know, he's no Warren Barton. I mean, Warren Barton, Warren Barton would go up and down that wing all day long like he was on a hair advert, hair all over the place, mud all over his shirt. Loved him. He was passionate. Same as John Beresford on the left. I would play that entire locker room of players. The four threes at Liverpool, the 5 0 with Man United, and even some of the losses to Blackburn and Nottingham Forest back in that title season. I'd say, look at the passion with all these players. Players like Dave Batty, you know, oh, yeah. Lee Clark, who I know personally. I used to work for his wife's granddad back in 97. That was another story. Um, but Clarky, the passion for Newcastle United, we need 10% of him there. And I know he's not the greatest manager in the world, but if he could just go in and tell those players what it's like to be a proper Geordie with that shirt on, maybe we'd get a little bit more out of these guys and we might get a little bit more out of Steve Bruce because I genuinely think in his blood, he's Man United. He's not Newcastle United. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you can't play for Man United that long, lift the Premier League trophy and still claim to be a Newcastle fan. Not with his mannerisms and the way he's he's going about his job. And it's just it just gets a little bit pissy whenever he's just come into question. And we're 15th in the league. No winning six games. Questions do have to be asked, and then he's just getting a bit stroppy about it. I don't I don't understand I just don't understand his point of view at this point. But compare that as you have done, Paul, with the atmosphere when Keegan was there and you were flogging pies. What what's your overriding memory of that time and and just how because that was my I mean, I live in the Midlands, but Newcastle, that that team of 95, 96, that's mm. what drew me into supporting that team. What are your overriding memories of, of being in and around the club at that time? Well, one of the first memories, it was before I went to work at the stadium, I, I remember a player called David Kelly, and I just loved watching him play. And he wasn't the most agile of players, but he was always in the right place at the right time. And I thought, he's the kind of player I want in the box. And the gradual influx of players, one by one, that was exciting. You know, even getting someone like Gavin Peacock, that was great. <laughs> you know, just getting him in there, the little terrier in the box. I was excited about him. And then you started getting players. I mean, the one that got me was Rob Lee. 700 oh. grand, 700,000 quid for Rob Lee from Charlton Athletic. What a signing that was. I mean, forget about Andy Cole. I know we got him for 1.7 from Bristol. But Rob Lee for a million less. He played for England. What a signing that was. But at the stadium, there was one game that stuck out more than any other. And I was desperate to go and watch it after half time. Uh, Steve Howie got a hat trick against Aston Villa. And we beat Villa 4 3. What a game it was. And that was my last game working at the Platinum Club because I got promoted from the bottom level to the Platinum Club to sell pies. <laughs> and that was the last game I was. Uh, Gonna, you know, gonna work then. I thought, what a fabulous way to go out, Steve. How he got a hat trick. And the next week, I started a new job at the Swallow Hotel just around the corner with my brother. 
And the first game I missed was the 5 0 against Man United. No. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, that is the <sighs> best day ever. It's the best result we've ever had domestically, anyway. And I wasn't even there. But salivate, you know, it's, that was me being selfish. But um, yeah, that, that Villa victory 4 four three was, was something special. It's always good to be the villa, especially where Sam's from as well. It's something that it's something yeah. to brag about. <laughs> but everyone talks about Alan Shearer, Paul, as the man that just is Mr. Newcastle. But what we like to do with a few shows that me and Sam have done on the Green and Mulner show is talk about who's the second favourite player, maybe apart from Shearer, because a lot of people will say that and it's we kind of we find it quite fascinating. Like you've mentioned Rob Lee, some people have said Norberto Solano, but mm. who is yours? That's a very good question. I I never I wasn't one for buying replica kits. I did have one, and it was the one that you know Tamura Ketsby uh, had on with the baggy sleeves when he was kicking the board. Um, I remember having that one. Um, but as far as you know, players that I really really liked. I mean, Rob Lee was was the one. He was gung ho when he got the ball. He wasn't afraid to go forward. I, I just thought you know he's the kind of player that. I always wanted to be. I was a centre back myself, but yeah, Rob Lee was probably the player. But there were other players that you know, I always found so exciting to watch. David Ginola. <laughs> I know he's called David Ginola, but he's Jordy David Ginola. That, <laughs> um, that that first goal in the five nil, and some of the other ones that he scored, he was just a genius. And I think it was just a privilege to have him at our club. I know he went out of Spurs after and other places, but what a player, David Ginola. Incredible, just a genius, and he he was our genius. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like for me, I was just a little bit too young for that era. But the the similarities of maybe Lauren Robert, yeah, maybe not as good, not as good as Janola, but exciting. Got you off the edge of your seat, and you wanted you you didn't know what you were going to expect from him. That's probably the only like similar comparison with that Boy Robson era, for example, Paul. Mm. But like, great times. Yeah, I mean, England didn't have a left winger at the time because uh, Giggsy was playing for Wales. <laughs> and we, we had two incredible French left wingers in Robert and, and Ginola. And, well, I mean, I mean, I, I like the fact that Newcastle United were breeding players from the region, like they're doing with the long stuffs now. I think that's important. Newcastle's all, always had that with, like, so Lee Clark and Robbie Elliott, you know, it's... It's always been a, a part of the club, same as Man United with their youth system. And I think we've always got to, got to massage that. Um, and I always liked cheering for those lads, um, like Robbie Elliott, his chicken dance. I'll never, ever forget that, ever. And it was just throughout a character. Uh, but knowing Lee Clark for a little bit of time, um, I haven't seen Lee in a long time, but I just get the feeling that the pride is always there, you know? And... I think that's one of the things that's missing at the minute. They need an injection of someone with a thick Geordie accent to go in and say, do you actually realise what, what it means to play for this club? And I think we need a bit of that right now, more than ever. You're not doing anything tomorrow, are you? Just before we play Arsenal in the FA Cup. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Prediction for Saturday. Paul, what do you think against Arsenal? Um, I fear the worst. Uh, I mean, we've had some great battles with Arsenal over the years. Uh, most of them we've lost, but I think what they need to do is go out there and just 
take the handbrake off. It's, it's, you know, what's the worst that could happen against a club like Arsenal? We'll have the pressure on them to get the result. Go out there and make some tackles. You know, hustle. You know, stick to some shape for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. You know, get some shape. Have some rigidity. You know, if you have got a danger man in the middle of the field, stick to him. That was I was always taught that when I was a footballer. If you've got a danger man, somebody man mark. Just do it. I know it's a bit old school, but have a shape and just carry it around the pitch and, and just suffocate them a little bit. It's what I love about Almiron. He can run till the cows come home and he chases down the keeper. Just keep doing that. Just put them under pressure. That's what we do in darts. We put people under pressure all the time. And if you do, you could make them crumble. And if they don't put them under pressure, I think Arsenal will win comfortably. Sam, where do you think? What do you think will happen on Saturday? Do you think Newcastle are going to be in the fourth and fifth round draw on Monday? Nope. Or do you think that's where it ends? No, I've I've already written it off and I'm already upset about the manner of our defeat on Saturday. Um <laughs> it, it's it's all it's all about it is it's just all about Tuesday at Sheffield United to stop this rot of defeats. And I've just got a horrible feeling. Just I said it um after the Leicester game the other uh, other day, just remember Derby County all them years ago. They were absolutely terrible. I mean, I don't know who Sheffield United's equivalent of Kenny Miller is to score a thirty-yard <laughs> streamer, but um, I just hope it's not a repeat of that because um, we could be in a spot of bother if that is the case. But <sighs> Brentford was the chance for a cup run, wasn't it? I don't think it's the chance. Brentford, Brentford was the chance, and we blew it. 100%. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just before you go, you mentioned that you're going to be having a book out. When can we see it, potentially? I don't know when exactly I'm going to do it, because I, I read Sid Waddell's two books. He did one about growing up and then one about his comedy career. I'd like to do that someday, because my growing up tales of living in Cramlington, living in Blythe, and then obviously moving abroad, I think that would be a pretty good story to tell. But Still more to do. I don't know what uh, is going to be ahead of me with playing because I still have the opportunity to continue to play, mm. uh, providing that the injuries don't come back because I've had issues with my shoulder. But um, uh, I'd like to write a book and I'd like to personally write it myself. I've, I've done a lot of writing over the last couple of years, so I'm getting into that now. But I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, but I would imagine it'll be before my 50th birthday, which will be in the next nine years. Fantastic. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. But Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk darts, to talk football, and just the passion for Newcastle United. And hopefully, if the, any of the players are watching or if the managers are watching, to take it on board for the game against Arsenal and Sheffield United in the next few days. But Sam, a fantastic, fantastic conversation for the last hour or so. Absolutely. I, I think um, Steve Bruce needs a meeting with us three. <laughs> 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 that would be that would be some meeting. From myself, Sam Muller, and Paul the Asset Nicholson. We'll see you all very, very soon.